This is Discussions on the Firewater Network, where we talk to those crafting the future of the spirits industry. And now, here's your host. This is Zachary Farley. Today, I'm speaking with Anthony Brichta of County Seat Spirits in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Thanks for joining me today, Anthony. I appreciate you coming out. Thanks a lot. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Thanks for showing me around your great new distillery. So, Anthony, tell me about your distillery. What are you building here at County Seat? So, County Seat Spirits is the first distillery in Lehigh County. We're located in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania, and specifically, we're located in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We're a grain-to-glass distillery that produces rum, vodka, gin, and bourbon. We eventually hope to do some other whiskeys. Very cool. I really want to get in and talk about your wide variety of spirits that you're making and the great story behind all the names and everything. I think that's so fascinating. But first, you have a background in law, am I correct? Yeah. I'm Not I'm, distilling, right? No. How did you get started in this? I went to visit one of my friends in Brooklyn, New York, and we went on a distillery tour at Kings County Distillery in Brooklyn. The Kings County Distillery was one of the first distilleries I had ever visited. It was the first real small-scale distillery that I had visited. So I talked to the two guys who own it, talked to them, saw their setup, saw that they were doing it on a very small scale, talked to them about how feasible it was to do it on a small scale, and kind of left with the impression that this was something I could do if I wanted to. And it also appealed to me because I've kind of always wanted to start a business. I've always wanted to start something where I could make something and actually put it out in the marketplace. Visiting a place, kind of getting bit by the bug and seeing that you don't need <laughs> a gigantic warehouse with 5,000 gallon stills and all that kind of stuff. You can get started on a much smaller scale. Yeah, exactly. And the good thing about being a lawyer is you don't have to. You haven't really started your own business. I work at a firm where, for the most part, business comes to me. I do the work that I'm asked to do. But you end up representing a lot of people who are doing cool things <laughs> and a lot of people that are building things and making things and starting companies. So I've always kind of had in the back of my head that you know I wanted to kind of get on the other side as well. Oh, cool. So how did you learn about distilling then? So you went, you saw how someone else does it. How'd you actually get the skills yourself? Yeah, well, unfortunately, you can't home distill in the same way that you can home brew. So kind of learned it the old-fashioned way by going to as many distilleries as I could. Basically, whenever I traveled anywhere, I'd go to a distillery, talk to the owner, see what their operation looked like. Read a whole bunch of books on distilling and basically learned online and basically just picked up all the information I could. One of the great things that I really like meeting with distillers and talking with them is everyone is very open and they're willing to talk to you about their process. It's not like everything's a closely guarded secret and they're trying to keep new entrants out. It really does seem like, especially in the small, quote unquote, craft space, people are happy to talk to up and comers or people who really want to get started. Established craft distillers really are happy to help you get started. Do you kind of find that? Absolutely. I don't think I've ever had any distillery that I've approached and asked a question that wasn't answered. I'm careful, yeah. you know, I'm not asking everyone mash bill. I'm not asking exactly where they source all their ingredients or some of the proprietary information that they probably wouldn't share. But yeah, every distillery I've visited, whether it's in Michigan or Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, they've been really open. I mean, even especially the local guys. I mean, mm -hmm. there's been a couple of distilleries that within an hour or two of us, they've all talked to us. They've all talked to me. They've all shown me their operations. They've all been tremendously helpful. That's cool. It's like the rising tide lifts all boats kind of a thing. Your quote unquote competition should be the people who are right here next to you, but it's actually the people who want to help you out the most because the more you can do to bring awareness to this industry is what I'm assuming, the better everyone does. Yep. And that's the hope. I mean, among craft distillers I talk to, and for us at least, we're not trying to cannibalize somebody else's sales from another distillery. We're never going to say, 
don't go to this craft distillery, buy our stuff. The idea is if you like their stuff, hopefully you'll like our stuff too. Hopefully people who try other craft distilleries will leave with the idea of, wow, I want to see what else is out there. And we hope that when people visit our distillery, they'll be left with the same feeling that, hey, I want to see some other distilleries and buy their stuff. And, you know, the hope is that we can get as craft distillers a small share of the marketplace and grow it in the same way that craft brewing does. But I don't really view us as being competition for one another. That's awesome. So how long has County Seep been open then? When did you fire up your still for the first time? So we received our federal permit in October and our state license in October as well. Of 2014? Of 2014. Okay. So for us, we have a production space and we have a small tasting room, which we're sitting in now. So for us, our production space was essentially cleared at the end of November, early December. So the timeline for us was we got all our approvals in October, opened the production space. I think it was either late November or very early December, started making spirits, producing, putting bourbon into barrels, working on our recipes, refining all of our processes. And then we opened officially to the public, I think on Valentine's Day was our (laughs) first announced day. And we're in the soft opening phase right now. So we have an official grand opening scheduled for April 10th. This is a great timing to get to talk to you then because it's all so fresh in your memory what it took to get started. I'd like to just ask you a question, if you don't mind. A term gets thrown around a lot. We've already used it. You know, craft. You're a craft distillery. Craft distillers helping you. It's co-opted by larger brands even. Everyone wants to be thought of as craft now. I'm always just curious. What does craft mean to you? It does mean different things to different people. For us, I think it means authenticity. So we're a small distillery by size, and we're a craft distillery in the way that we make our products. So we pick our ingredients, we choose our recipes, we choose how we're going to make the products, we choose how we're going to distill it, we choose what we want it to taste like, we choose how we're going to make the cuts. And right now we're two-man operation doing everything by hand. So for us, when you buy one of our spirits, it's a craft spirit in the sense that the guys who are showing you around the distillery and giving you a taste are the guys who made it. So for us, I think authenticity and and kind of the hands-on approach is what craft means to us. We do kind of think of ourselves first as a distillery in the sense that we hope to grow. We hope to be larger down the road. We're starting very small, but we like to think of ourselves as a distillery. I've had the question before when people come in and they say, well, you're making a bourbon. I say, yeah, we're making a bourbon. They say, what kind of bourbon are you making? I say, oh, we're making a bourbon. You would say, it's a heavily weeded bourbon. It's a bourbon that we hope tastes good. And they say, what well, is it? A craft bourbon. It's like, well, it's a bourbon. <laughs> it's bourbon. a bourbon bourbon. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's a bourbon bourbon. It's in a bottle. The bottle says bourbon on the side. Yeah. Let um, me check the beverage alcohol manual from the TTB and see what the definition of craft bourbon is. Yeah. What does that even mean? And there's a lot of really good bourbons that aren't craft bourbons, and there's a lot of really good bourbons that are craft bourbons. Mm -hmm. So when people ask us that, I guess I try to say, in the way we do it, in the hands-on approach and at our size, we're a small craft distillery. But just like every other distillery, whether it's small or big, primary goal is to make it as good as we can. Yeah. You're making your kind of spirits. You're a you kind of distillery, basically. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I want to talk about your location because it's a very cool spot. You're in a startup incubator, basically, for manufactured goods or for things that need equipment, not like a tech startup or anything. Why here? Was it hard to get approval for a distillery in a space with so many shared walls, for lack of a better word? Correct. So our space is a little bit unique. The toughest things about opening a manufacturing business or a distillery in particular is finding a location. Yeah. Um, you can't really start the state process, the federal process, the buying equipment process, the figuring out what you're going to make process 
until you have a location. You can kind of work on the marketing angle and what you want to make, but you can't really start putting together the nuts and bolts about how you're actually going to produce something until you find and pick a location. So for some people, that means they find an angelic looking farm and that they can grow their own grains and we have a farmhouse. For us, because of our size and because we're an independently self-funded distillery, we were looking for a small manufacturing space in an urban environment where we could start up. So we're located in the Allentown Economic Development Corporation's Bridgeworks Enterprise Center, and it's a small business incubator. So Mack Truck has a fantastic history in the Lehigh Valley, and particularly Allentown. This is an old Mack Truck plant. In 1989, it was essentially given to the city. The city used it to create an economic development corporation uh, business incubator. So this facility has been a business incubator since the late 80s. And in recent years, it's really started to be a great spot for craft beverages. So the incubator has everything from a distillery to a brewery to a meadery to a plastic polymer manufacturer. <laughs> wow to just about everything. We have a business in here that makes cardboard kits to build your own dinosaurs, which is is doing fantastically well. So it's a really interesting space and it's got a lot of the shared resources um, that we need. So it has a loading dock. It has some extra space where we can store grain. It has some shared utilities. We don't have to have our own bathrooms. There's bathrooms in the building. All the small stuff. (laughs) All the small stuff that when you're picking a space, if you have to find a space that has a loading dock or construct one, is going to be tremendously expensive. And at our size, we wouldn't be able to do it. Because this is an old Mack truck facility, your engineering requirements were probably easy to meet too, right? You didn't have to worry about, can the floors handle the weight of my stills or anything like that? If they can handle gigantic diesel trucks, they can probably handle what you guys are producing here, your bottling and the weight of the stills when the mash is in there and all that stuff. Correct. There's a lot of advantages to the building. Half of the space is pretty high-grade concrete where we can put all our fermentation, our stills, all the heavyweight stuff. The other half of our space is wood, which doesn't quite have as much structural <laughs> strength as the concrete. So we locate all our heavy equipment on the concrete part. But it also had other things. It had a huge gas line that we could tap into. Oh, okay. Um, you know, it had had higher grade, more industrial style electricity. We still had to fit out the space and tap into all that, but we didn't have to bring it in fresh from outside of the yeah, building. Yeah, to call up the gas company and like, hey, can we get a new gas line in here or get a 340 amp <laughs> electrical service or whatever? Yeah, exactly. That was all, it was all already here. That's great. And I guess another benefit is you have a brewery here, you were saying, and a meadery. So you know that the city's okay with alcohol being produced, right? So just even from a basic permitting perspective. Correct. So when we found the space, I actually heard about the business incubator because I'm a graduate of Lehigh University and there's a graduate from Lehigh University who runs the meadery. He's one of the owners of the meadery. I didn't know him. I went there for undergrad. He went there for business school. But I actually saw a LinkedIn posting where he was looking for either bottles or labels about a year and a half ago. So I reached out to him to kind of figure out what he was doing because I thought maybe he was opening something like a distillery, a winery, a brewery, something like that. It turns out he was opening a meadery. Talked to him. That was right at the tail end of 2013 when the meadery was opening. So the meadery that's next to us is called the Colony Meadery, one of the best meaderies in the country, which is great for us because we get tons and tons of traffic off it. And the brewery that's next to us is Hijinx Brewing. I mean, they're a craft brewery in the Lehigh Valley that's recently expanded to meat supply. Wow. You could have like just a alcohol passport book in these hallways, hit all three while you're here. (laughs) One of the things we've noticed even in the few weeks we've been open is that people love coming to visit all three. So we get a ton of overflow traffic from the brewery and the meadery because they're much more well-known than we are right now. And we hope that in time we can give them a lot of overflow Uh traffic as as we become (laughs) more well-known. 
Cool. Well, so this is an incubator space. You went to Lehigh, which is not too far from your distillery. It seems like a lot of this has to do with trying to, I don't know if rebuild or give a rebirth to Allentown. I don't quite know what the right word is, but we are in the old steel area of Pennsylvania. It's an old manufacturing space where the truck company has moved out of town. Do you kind of view part of coming here and opening here as being a part of that rebirth of Allentown, of, of contributing back to the community that raised you? Yeah, we certainly do. I mean, I was born in Allentown. I went to high school in Allentown. So I kind of grew up here and it was kind of an older city that was an old proud city, but it didn't have a whole lot of new development in the downtown. It didn't have a whole lot of new manufacturing or jobs. And the city itself in the last couple of years has gone through basically a revitalization program where there's been some tax benefits for building in the center city, which has spawned all types of different development. We have the local Phillies uh, minor league baseball team. Oh, really? So we have the Iron Pigs and we have the Phantoms, which are the local uh, hockey team. So it's basically the Philadelphia Flyers, a minor league team. Gotcha. So the rebirth of Allentown really started just about a year ago when they put the hockey arena in. It's called the PPNL Center, and it's right in the center of the city. Basically, all around that, there's been more bars, restaurants. People are starting to build condos and apartment buildings and things to get people back into the downtown. So it's not just a place you drive through on your way to your house in the suburbs. It's a place where people can actually work, live, and enjoy a little bit of nightlife. So even though we're not right in that downtown area, we're about a half mile away or so, we definitely hope that we can be a big part of that. Mm -hmm. We certainly hope as we grow and get a little more inventory, we can start selling to some of those new bars and restaurants. Yeah. I mean, kind of being a part of that. So we're really proud of what Allentown's doing and we're hoping to be a very small part of it. That's really cool. And as these new bars and restaurants open up, that's great opportunity for you too, because these are bars that are wanting to be part of the rebuilding of Allentown. And what better way than to sell a local spirit made just down the street, essentially. How do you get the word out about your product? And I know you've just opened, but how do people find out about you? What do you use? Do you use an online strategy? Do you do any kind of print stuff? Yeah, we're so new. We're just starting to really get into that. We get a little bit of press just locally, just because we're new and we're a new business and we're a new distillery. We have the usual social media accounts. We have a Twitter, we have a Facebook, we have a website. For now, we do a whole lot of just relying on word of mouth because um, mm -hmm. we don't have a huge marketing budget. We get most of our traffic right now is from people that have heard about us from either another distillery or from reading about us online. And we get a really great bit of overflow traffic from hijinks and from Colony Meadery. So for now, we're just trying to get the word out and slowly build. We'll do a little bit more aggressive marketing after we do a grand opening in April. That's when we're going to start really marketing to bars and restaurants, hope to do some tastings at local bars and restaurants, and then actually spend some more marketing dollars. Yeah, that's a really good point that you're making. Make friends because word of mouth is so critical, even among breweries, distilleries, or breweries, meateries, wineries, people sending people to you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the one yeah. thing we try to do as best as we can, since the people that come in can do a tour, a tasting, they can get a cocktail from us, they can buy a bottle. We really try to treat them like gold when they're yeah. in here, particularly on the days where we don't have a ton of people. So if somebody comes in and they're interested about craft spirits, maybe they're thinking about opening a distillery, maybe they're just interested in how products are made, and we have the time for them. I mean, we'll show them everything. We'll show them exactly how we do every step of the process. We'll chat with them for as long as they want. 
we really try to give them a great experience so that they can go out and tell a couple people. And yeah, we hope to make as many friends as we can. <laughs> Very cool. So as I understand it, Pennsylvania's laws are pretty strict about liquor distribution and, and sales. It's a completely controlled state, isn't it, from the liquor store perspective? Correct. Pennsylvania is what you call a control state. Okay. So they're called the fine wine and good spirit stores. So there's no bad spirits sold in all of Pennsylvania then? There's some bad spirits sold in Pennsylvania. <laughs> not ours, not ours, but there are some. But for the most part, it's really good. So all of the wine and spirits are sold by state liquor stores. So it's a state system for wine spirits. Basically, the only way you can sell spirits outside of the state system is by doing it the way we're doing it right now. If you have a what's called a limited distillery license, okay. which is kind of a new invention in the last couple of years that the state has come up with, you can do some other things. You can sell directly to consumers at your distillery. You can actually ship by mail. We don't do any of that yet, but you can. So there's a customer in Pittsburgh that hears about us and really wants to try our rum, or maybe they've bought a bottle and they want to buy another bottle because they drank that one. <laughs> we can mail them a bottle. Cool. Yep. And we can market directly to bars and restaurants. So I can literally register my Subaru with the state and then drive cases of spirits to bars and restaurants. So the state has opened up a lot for that, but it is still a control state. Yeah. So are you right now being distributed by the state? We're not. The state basically has twice a year. You can basically pitch your products to them. So we're so new, we haven't done that yet. Yeah. What we'll probably do first is the state allows you to sell online through the state liquor stores. So you can actually sell them a couple cases, something that you may not be able to move a ton of on the shelves, but you can get it out there and maybe the state will send an email about, hey, we've got some new local products and they'll actually sell some of it online. That's okay. fairly easy to get into. Beyond that, the next step is really getting in the brick and mortar stores and we're just not there yet. People don't know about us enough that we would sell outside of our general vicinity of where we're located. We don't have the inventory yet to do that. So our essential plan is to, when we have the bourbon out of barrels in about a year from now, start making a push to probably sell the bourbon and maybe our gin and possibly our rum on the state stores. Definitely want to follow up with you on that. I'd like to know what that process has been like for you as you start to make that pitch, because I imagine it's a lot different than going out and finding a private distributor, for example, like you have to do in other states. Yeah. There's only one you can pick from here. So. Yeah, I mean, the Pennsylvania's <laughs> got a lot better. I'd heard from other craft distilleries that have been operating for a couple of years mm -hmm. that it used to be a lot harder to pitch the state okay. just a few years ago because since distilleries in Pennsylvania are relatively new, they weren't really accustomed to somebody showing up and saying, I want to be in like 10 stores. They're yeah. used to Jack Daniels calling them or already having a relationship with them and saying, we can supply all 600 stores as much as you want. You mm -hmm. know, tell us where to drop it off. Pennsylvania has got a lot better from what I understand in the last year or so in giving craft distilleries a chance on a smaller level. So there are a couple craft distilleries that are in almost all of the state stores, but there's a few more that are doing local distribution where the state store will say, we'll put you in the three or four counties around where you are. Okay, that's um, how they do that. Yeah, so that would probably be the first step for us would be to try to get in Lehigh County liquor stores, Northampton County liquor stores, Berks County liquor stores, and kind of our surrounding counties. And then hopefully if we're selling and it goes well, I mean, we can get our name out there a little bit more, the state would consider putting us out on a broader level. Okay. The least fun part, I would imagine, of opening up a distillery, but critically important to do right, the paperwork <laughs> that you had to get through, all your TTB, all your state-level stuff. Yep. Since the state is 
so new in permitting and licensing and allowing the operation of small distilleries. Was it difficult to get in touch with people who were knowledgeable about everything you needed to help guide you through the process? Or was everyone learning at the same time? Or was the state pretty helpful to work through? I actually found, quite frankly, that the state and the feds were both pretty easy to work with. Really? Which I know from listening to your podcast and talking to other distillers is not always the case. Yeah. We certainly had to go through the same waiting and not knowing what was going on with our applications that everyone else did. But for the most part, I mean, we're a small company. There's just two of us. We don't have a complicated financial structure. We don't have a big facility. So our federal forms are pretty straightforward and our state forms are pretty straightforward. The state actually comes out and does a visit. Make sure you have a still. Make sure you're (laughs) basically a real distillery. Yeah. The feds for us did not do a visit. I think they do for some people. Mm -hmm. For us, they did not. But I thought both of those were pretty straightforward. I guess I'm, awesome. I guess as an attorney, I'm a little familiar with paperwork, yeah. so it wasn't too difficult. I mean, it was time-consuming to put together all the paperwork, but for the most part, it was just send it in, wait for them to come back and tell you you have to change a few little things, and then wait for it to be done. So I would say the paperwork was fairly straightforward, but mm. the waiting part was okay. definitely not. The waiting <laughs> yeah. part was not fun. Ah, uh, what are they doing? Can yeah. I, when can I start? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, okay, away from paperwork and the unpleasant part of that. No, it doesn't sound like it was too bad for you. Let's actually talk about what you make here. Go through it. What all are you producing? Yeah. So in terms of what we make right now is we make a rye-based vodka. Oh, um, interesting. Which we currently sell. We make a whole sugarcane rum, which we currently sell. And that's our Sand Island rum. Our vodka is called Class 8 Vodka. So yeah, so you were saying at first you just wanted to do a bourbon. That's kind of at the very beginning when you're thinking about products. So why rum then? (laughs) Bourbon, traditional American spirit, rum, something not so traditional, especially I don't associate rum with Pennsylvania. Where did that come from? There is no organic Allentown native sugar cane that I'm aware of. (laughs) So yeah, it's not a local Allentown spirit. Okay, it doesn't feel too tropical here. It doesn't feel too tropical. As the snow is falling. Yeah, as the snow is falling outside (laughs) the, the tasting room window. So we were originally planning to do bourbon, and that's still really our focus, is we want to put out a good local Pennsylvania bourbon. And the idea was it's going to take time to age. So we had to think about other products that we could make that we wanted to make. The two that we hit on right away were we knew we were going to do rum, because rum seems to be having a little bit of a resurgence. Yeah, And it's a spirit that is pretty good white. It doesn't need a lot of time in the barrel, even if you are aging it. So we knew that we could make a good rum and get it out there. Gin, we knew we were going to do because gin is also having a little bit of a resurgence. And gin is really good for people who are producing small batch craft spirits because you can make a really, really high quality gin even on a small system. So we kind of hit on those two. And then vodka was the last thing we decided to make. And it was really just a function of we knew it was going to take time to develop a gin. We knew we could make a pretty good vodka with our setup. So it was another spirit that doesn't need aging and that we could put out. And we made the decision early on which we almost regret not to do a white whiskey. Okay. A lot of distilleries, they want to do whiskey. They'll just put out an aged whiskey when it's done. But in the meantime, they'll put out a white whiskey. And it sells. People sell a lot of white whiskey. We thought our time would be better spent putting out different white spirits and just waiting for the bourbon to be aged. Yeah, because you're building a great portfolio. And I think your point is a very good one, too. The thing about bourbon is it takes time. And as we've discussed already, there's a lot of money just tied up in getting the lights on here, getting all the paperwork done by the time you can actually fire up your still. Now at another year, two years, three years on for barrel aging bourbon, that's just not very economically feasible. You need to do something else. You need to do an unaged spirit. But your rum, you're not just doing it because... 
why not? You actually have a very unique take on it. What are you doing differently with your own? Because I thought it was fascinating as you were describing it to me off air. Sure. So one of the dilemmas when you're trying to figure out what kind of spirits you're going to make and how you're going to make them is you can go a variety of different ways. You can make spirits that are completely off the wall. You can do a really unique gin. I think gin smiths, you know, they do like a, what is it, a plum gin? Yeah. But they make a standard gin too. So on one side of the spectrum, you could do really all very unique oddball products that might taste really good, might be better than most of what's out on, there on the market, but they're going to be hard for consumers to approach. Right. People know vodka, people know rum, people know whiskey. If you're selling a really, really, really interesting niche product, it's going to be a little harder to explain to people what you can do with it. Yeah, how do I even use it? Yeah, exactly. So sure, I'll buy a bottle, but uh, exactly, I'll buy a bottle because I'll never know how to drink it. Yeah. Exactly. And then the other way you can do it is basically just try to make very standard products. We've kind of done something in between. So for our vodka, we try to have a pretty flavorful vodka, even though you, huh. you're not supposed to. Wait a second. You're, yeah. not, you're not really supposed to. You're, <laughs> not really, you're, not, you're not supposed to say that, but it's not a completely neutral vodka. It certainly meets all the federal all the legal definitions. Certainly meets it. all the legal definitions and requirements <laughs> and the way we distill it and how we label it. But we're not going to out neutral the really neutral vodkas that are produced on huge systems. If you want that, that's fine. Buy it, but it's not what we do. So for our vodka, we think it has a really nice flavor. Our rum, which you just mentioned, is we use an organic whole sugar cane that we source from Colombia through an American distributor. It's basically called what's called Panela, which has kind of been big if you poke around online on the home distillers. They've been using it for decades. Okay, in New Zealand where it's legal, yes. Yeah, using it in New Zealand where it's legal. So we looked into that instead of doing a traditional molasses-based rum. So the way that our rum comes out is it has a lot more of an earthy, tropical feel. So we actually compare our rum a lot to cachaça, if you know what cachaça is. Yes, what is it, just in case people listening don't. Yeah, so cachaça is basically Brazilian rum. So we have a rum that's a little bit different by the way we make it. Yeah. So we like that as opposed to just doing a traditional sugar wash or a traditional molasses mm-hmm. wash. We kind of do something uh, a little bit unique. Same thing with our gin and our bourbon. So our bourbon is a heavily weeded bourbon. So okay. it's going to be a little bit softer on your palate. That's intentional. We want to basically have a very weeded bourbon because that's what we like. And it'll be a little bit different than most bourbons that you drink, but it's still a bourbon. It's still mm-hmm. a bourbon that if you like bourbon, you're going to hopefully like it. Yeah. And you're going to know what you can do with it. And our gin, we're using some interesting botanicals. We're using a little bit of grains of paradise, which some gins do use. We're using some elderberry, elderberry flowers. And then we're using some of the traditional botanicals like a coriander and a juniper, obviously. Yeah. So we've tried to do our little bit of a twist on each spirit that we make. Okay. That's very cool. What's your taste making process? How do you make sure you're not just making 6,000 gallons of a botanical blended gin that only you're going to drink? Do you reach out? Do you get a tasting panel together? Do you call up friends or do you just, you and your partner just kind of trust your, each other's palates? Yeah, well, we believe we have the best tasting panel in the world because we, we're located next to a brewery and a meadery. So yeah. for us, it's great that whenever we're testing a new recipe, we can have some guys come over, give it a taste. They're very honest. Yeah. You know, we've had batches that we didn't like when we were testing out recipes. And, you know, they'll tell us, they'll say, I want to drink this. I want to buy this. <laughs> Jeez, guys. Yeah, (laughs) and we know that that one goes in the cutting room floor and we have to switch up the recipe. So our process is essentially we don't have any paid consultants. So we don't pay someone to tell us how to make our bourbon or this is what you should use in your mash bill or, hey, I'm going to come do it for you for the first couple batches. We basically picked how we wanted to make it and tested a lot of recipes to figure out how we were going to do it. And then 
figured out how we were going to make our cuts. And then in the gin in particular, like I said, we toyed with it a lot. We have a lab still. We have, okay. a, we have a one liter lab still that we use to test out new recipes before we put it into production. So we ran a whole bunch of botanical bills and basically came up with six gin recipes that we really liked. And then basically had different guys from the brewery, different friends and family, ourselves. And then the guys from the meadery, of course, basically test them. We narrowed it down to two. And then we picked the one that we liked the best out of those two. Yeah. What you're saying kind of goes back to our earlier discussion. It's all about authenticity with you. You two guys make it by hand. You figure out the grain bills, the botanical bills by yourselves. You get input, obviously, but no one else with an established product line is coming in here and telling you how to do it. This is your product and this is how you're making it. And I think along those lines too, you're a grain to glass distillery. You source nothing. You showed me you have a mill here. You, you just buy grain. Where do you get your grain from and, and what made you want to go through that whole process? There are a lot of terms that are thrown around. Distilling grain to glass is one of them. We certainly believe we are grain to glass the way we do it. We'd like to eventually grow our own grains and buy our own farm, but yeah. for now, that's just not quite feasible. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we do the whole process within about 800, 900 square feet. Wow. And we like to show people that on the tours when they come out that here's the sacks of grain. Here's how it gets milled. Here's our mill. Here's the actual mill box with the room that keeps the dust contained <laughs> in there. Here's what it looks like after we've milled it. Here's the tank it goes in to get mashed. Here's how we turn it into basically a distiller's beer. Here it is fermenting. Here it is in the still. Here it is in the still the second time. And basically show the whole process. So yeah, we do everything grain to glass. The only product that's not grain to glass is our rum because we use a sugar. So it's sugar to glass. Sugar to glass. Sugar sugar to glass, not (laughs) grain. Thanks for clarifying though. But yeah, I mean, we don't use any NGS. We don't use any prepackaged spirits for blending or creating our products whatsoever. We make every drop of alcohol on premises. And do you work with local farms? to get your grains. Pennsylvania has lots of grains. Yeah. So how'd you find your producers? All of our grains, with our exception of our distiller's malt, are from Pennsylvania. So we use a grain company in Lancaster County, okay. which is not too far from here. And they basically source Pennsylvania grains for us. So we're a little bit too small and we don't produce on a consistent weekly basis yet to get direct contracts with farmers um, because we have to manage cash flow. We have to manage production, make sure that we can actually use the grain we have. So we basically buy from somebody who sources all Pennsylvania grain for us. um, And eventually as we get bigger, we'd like to go all Pennsylvania. So we've even started doing that with our malt. So we still use a traditional distiller's malt that we source, I believe, Minnesota. Okay. But we are trying to go to all Pennsylvania malts. So there's a new Pennsylvania malt house called Deer Creek. Um, yeah. It's basically a craft malt house, and they're, they're marketing to craft breweries and, and small distilleries. We've done a couple of batches of specialty bourbon. That's an all Pennsylvania grain bourbon. And we'd huh. eventually, as they grow and we grow, we'd like to use all their products if we can. Yeah, okay. and if anyone out there is a... Pennsylvania sugarcane grower, <laughs> contact County Seed Spirits. Yeah, we'd love to do it. <laughs> well, let's talk about your names a little bit because the name of all your products are very fascinating. Class 8 does not scream vodka to me as I say it. Where do those names come from? Right. So for both our distillery name and for our product names, we wanted to keep the local connection. So County Seed is because Allentown is the county seat of Lehigh County. So that's kind of how we came up with that. And then we did our logo as a chair to play off the word seat because it evokes a feeling in our mind of kind of sitting back and having a drink. So that's how we picked our our distillery name and our logo. And then all of our product names, since we're located in the Lehigh Valley, we wanted to honor the different history of the Lehigh Valley. So for our core products, we basically picked names for Allentown, Bethlehem, and Easton. So Class 8 is our vodka. 
we picked that because we're in a historic Mack truck building that used to make Class 8 vehicles. Oh, gotcha. Um, so that's how we came up with Class 8. That one, we worked with the company that helps us with our label designs. They actually helped us craft that name. Sand Island Rum is the name of our rum. Sand Island is a park in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, okay. which is Allentown's sister city. And Sand Island Park is essentially a park on the Lehigh River. It's got great views of Bethlehem Steel and the river itself. And it's a local feature that everyone knows. To us, it was a great name. My partner and my uncle, John Rowe, came up with Sand Island. That was his creation. Okay. People really love that name. That might be the most popular of all our names. Really? Yeah, well, I mean, it's great that it's local and it's sandy and it's an island. That's everything you want in a rum, right? Yeah, uh, it sounds yeah. like uh, we tried to pick names that if you're local, you'll get it. Okay. But if you're from California or you're from any part of the country that's not the Lehigh Valley, you'll still think it sounds like a name that's appropriate for the spirit. Right on. Lockkeeper is the name of our gin. That's for Easton. Easton is another city in the Lehigh Valley. It has the National Canal Museum and a great history of the Lehigh Canal and trade paths, basically products coming down the canals to the city of Easton. And we searched for a name and we came up with that one because a lockkeeper is the historical figure who managed the locks on the canal and the, and the trade paths. So that one was our spirit for Easton. So we hope people from Easton buy a lot of it. <laughs> that's, the, that's the hope. That's the hope. Okay. That's, that's one of the hopes. <laughs> Here, that guy is your on notice. Buy gin. Yeah. Buy the lockkeeper gin. It's your gin. It's made so for you. you. Yeah, exactly. And then our bourbon, which isn't out yet because it's in barrels aging, is Hidden Copper Bourbon. We came up with that name for the story of the Liberty Bell in Allentown. Oh, what's that? Liberty Bell isn't in Allentown, am I right? No, the Liberty Bell is, yeah. is currently located in Philadelphia. Okay. But for a period of time in, I believe, 1777, it was located in Allentown. So oh. during the revolution, Philadelphia was going to get captured by the British, and they were basically going to ransack the place and take whatever was there. So there was a big fear that the Liberty Bell, which by that point in time had become a symbol of national pride, was going to be melted down into British bullets, which they'd use to shoot us, which okay. is not an ideal use for the Liberty Bell. <laughs> no, definitely not. So the Liberty Bell was actually horse and buggied um, <laughs> down now what is the Pennsylvania Turnpike from Philadelphia to Allentown, and it was hidden on a church in Hamilton Street. So the oh, Liberty right Bell on. was actually hidden in Allentown for about nine months. It's a predominantly copper Liberty Bell, hidden Liberty Bell, copper Liberty Bell, hidden copper bourbon. Very cool. Oh, I love all that. Yeah, it's so much older and more recent history for this entire region and it connects so well to what's around here. Let's talk then about not so much what's in the bottles, but of the bottles. <laughs> Tell me about your bottle choice. You have just opened, so I'm sure you just kind of went through this calculus on your own. Are you using off-the-shelf standard bottles from a glass maker, or are you using a custom mold? What went into your decisions? We use bottles from a Pennsylvania glass maker called Anchor Hawking. Oh, cool. It's not a custom bottle. It's a stock bottle. We found that the costs of going to a custom bottle were just not feasible for us. We would love to have a custom bottle, and maybe one day we will. I know Anchor Hawking does do custom bottles for some distilleries, so we could go that route. But okay. the problem with a custom bottle is you got to pay a tremendous amount for the mold, right? for the mold to be designed, and then you have to buy a tremendous amount of bottles. <laughs> yeah, like two trucks worth. Yeah. Yeah. Where would you keep that? Not here. Certainly more than 800 square feet worth, <laughs> worth of bottles. So we did the calculus, and as much as we would love to say that we were going to sell a million bottles in the first year of operation, we were probably not. Okay. <laughs> um, so we, we didn't go with a custom bottle. So instead of going with a custom bottle, we tried to go with 
a local bottle, a Pennsylvania mm-hmm. bottle, instead of sourcing something from China or someplace else. So, yeah. It's a stock bottle. It's not that much different. We use two bottles for all of our spirits except vodka. We use a shorter stout bottle, which is not that much different than what a lot of smaller distilleries are using. Mm-hmm. It's easier to hold. It's easy to label. It's a pretty standard bottle. And then we use a taller, clear wine style bottle, also from Anchor Hawking for our vodka. Okay. Um, just because it looks a lot more like a vodka bottle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would imagine going with that taller style, when you do go out and start pitching bars, it'll be very easy for a bartender to use it for mixing. It feels like it would fit very naturally into a rail, for example. We were surprised when we started looking at what bottles we were going to pick, how much you could really obsess over the bottle. (laughs) I talked to people who have custom bottles and would talk about they ran tests and focus groups on how it fits in your hand because they didn't want any of their bottles to ever be at a bar and the bartender would say, I'd rather pour something else Mm because this is easy. We did a little bit of that and basically just gave bartenders that we knew lots of bottles and said, (laughs) is there any of these that... You wanted okay. pour, you wanted <laughs> sure. pour because it was so hard for you to pour. And the general consensus we got was that for the most part, any bottle that's reasonably easy to hold is going to be acceptable. Okay. So that's kind of how we made our bottle choice. Awesome. And how about the labels then? What was that process like of finding the right design? Your designer is part of your team as well. They take your words, unless you hand drew it yourself, they take your words and turn it into an image. It must be very difficult to find that person you can have that kind of relationship with. Yeah, absolutely. So we're very happy with our label designer. We use a company in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, in Bucks County, called Miller Volpe. Okay, well, who knew Pennsylvania had every, that's incredible. Everything you're saying, it's from Pennsylvania, it's from Pennsylvania. It's yeah, incredible. So originally, we were going to try to either print our own labels and design our own labels. Okay. And we realized that as much as we're good at making spirits and doing other things, we were decidedly not good at Photoshop <laughs> and putting together an actual label design. Okay. So we realized pretty quickly that we were in over our head on that. Yeah. We had concepts, but then we looked for a local company. And then it turned out just to fate a good friend of mine, um, who I was actually the friend I had went on the tour with to Kings County. Okay. He had a relative who worked at Miller Volpe. So he recommended them pretty strongly and said they would be a good part of your team. And then when I started researching them to see if they would be an appropriate company to use, we actually found out that they designed the labels for Hewn Spirits in Bucks County, which is another craft distillery. Oh, gotcha. Um, So we actually really liked those labels. Yeah. We knew that they had already done this for another distillery. They kind of knew the process and they had done labels that we thought were really good. So of course, the first thing we did is we called the guy from Hewn okay. uh, and made sure he was okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, hey, we're gonna, we really like your labels. We're not trying to copy your labels, yeah. but we want to use the same company because we have somebody who else recommended them. Like you said earlier, everybody's really cool. So, okay. you know, he was like, no problem whatsoever. You know, you want to use the same label company? That, that's fine with me. Right on. So there you go. See, make friends and keep friends and yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So what we did with them was we provided a concept for our labels. Okay. And then they helped us flesh things out. So if you look at our labels, some of them we provided basically the whole label concept and they just put it together. Yeah. And the other part they kind of figured out. So for instance, one of the things we wanted all our labels to have is a see-through element. So if you look at each one of our labels, it has a part of the label that's clear so you can see the spirit through it. within the front of the label. So for our class eight vodka, the eight is basically a cutout 
It's yeah. a die cut so you can see the vodka through the eight. For our Staten Island rum, the portion of the label that shows where the island is on Lehigh River, the Lehigh River is clear so you can see the rum through there. And on our hidden copper bourbon, the portion that's a Liberty Bell is clear so you can see the amber bourbon through that. So that was a concept that actually my father came up with. Okay. When I was talking to him about different label designs, he said, wouldn't it be really cool if you had a cutout of the Liberty Bell? Yeah. We did think it was cool. That was a good idea. <laughs> You're so, right, Dad. <laughs> yeah, so we kind of gave him that concept and then they worked with that. So they came up with putting the Liberty, or they came up with putting the Lehigh River on the Sand Island bottle. We had given them the Liberty Bell and the other ones they kind of fleshed out too. And we went through a couple different designs. So like anything, we give them a concept. The bourbon was straightforward. We basically knew what it wanted to look like. Yep. They gave us a couple different iterations of it. We picked one. The others, we had different designs. So. Okay. That's cool, but it was, it was someone you could have that back and forth with, though, right? Yeah. You have that kind of closeness with your designer. Yeah, and I don't like that one. Give me another one. They're able to create something better for yeah, you. Yeah, and of course, they're there. We go through label approval, so yep. we're going through the label approval right now with the feds for our gin label okay. and our aged rum label. I think we had one label go through without any problems. Okay. <laughs> Everything else, they've had one little thing. Right. The prob- remember the one good time. <laughs> yeah, remember the one good time. The problem, too, is you know you fix one thing, and then you send it back, and then they say, well, we found something else. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so you end up going through a, a couple revisions on each label of just really minor things that the government wants you yeah. to wants you to change. They're there to make those changes and get it approved. Okay. And did everything come together well when it was time to apply a label to bottle? <laughs> I know that's something a lot of people talk about is you get this great label, you get this great bottle. Oh, wait, are they compatible? It's tough. I mean, yeah. we still have a little bit of issues getting labels on bottles. We have a labeling machine. It's a manual label machine where we hand roll the labels on. Okay. So it pulls the label off the roll for us and applies it to the bottle. But we're still doing it with our hands. It's yeah. not something we can just hit a button and they start getting labeled. And we still do, particularly since some parts of our labels are clear. If they don't go on perfect, you can see it. Okay. Um, so you yeah. can see if there's a little bubble or there's a little groove where it's not on straight. You'll be able to see that pretty easily on our labels. So it is a challenge to get them labeled. Um, mm-hmm. We're getting better. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, we warn people up front if there's a wrinkle in the label, it's because we're doing it. Some people really like that. Yeah. We've actually had somebody in the tasting the other day, and they wanted the really wrinkly really? one. Yeah, because they thought <laughs> it was they thought it was really cool, and I was okay. I was like, fine. Yeah, I was like, you can, you can have that one. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we're getting better at it for whatever reason. The taller vodka labels. Yeah. are much, much tougher. Really? Um, the other labels roll on pretty straight. Okay. Every time the taller vodka labels, we have a lot that we have to frustratingly rip off and throw out, unfortunately. But we're getting See, better. You wanted to start a distillery and here you are uh, worrying about applying labels. You know, uh, yeah. Probably not something you ever thought about. Well, yeah, it's yeah. funny. I mean, it's funny. Like when people think about starting a distillery, I mean, I think everybody has the idea. I'm going to be sitting on a leather chair to- <laughs> toasting my gin or toasting my bourbon or walking yeah. to a restaurant. And the restaurant's going to say, this is the greatest gin. And, you know, you do get some of those really, really great moments. But there's a lot of cleaning the tanks. There's a lot of working a label machine. There's a lot of putting things in cases. So not all of it is quite as glamorous as you would like to believe. But I think it's rewarding when you see it on the shelf. Yeah. Oh, I bet. I can only imagine. Okay, so the things that I actually get the product prepared to put in the bottles, your stills. I've never seen a still like you have back there. Where did you get those from? Can you describe them? Yeah, so we have two stills that we use, and they're both from a company called iStill. Okay. And we've done a lot of research on different types of stills that we looked at. We looked at some of the big boys, like a Carl or a Cote, or if you want a, something from the States, a Vendome. Mm-hmm. Big copper, big, beautiful stills. Very uh, beautiful, yeah. very high on copper, very expensive. Very expensive. <laughs> and it wasn't really in our budget. So we had to make the choice about whether we were going to go really, really small and 
build something that was so small that they wouldn't be able to really run a business. Or conversely, try to raise a whole bunch of money and get something like a $500,000, $600,000 still. Yeah. What we ended up doing was finding just through online research this company, iStill. Okay. And they were just starting to make stills and marketing them to the United States. So we have a larger still that we use both as a mash ton and a stripping still. It's directly fired, which we like because we think it gives our whiskeys a nice flavor. So you just have a burner underneath it, essentially. Yeah, it's a big old burner. <laughs> oh, wow. uh, so it heats it up with natural gas flames, and it basically has a really large large stir in the middle that okay. keeps everything moving so it doesn't burn. Then it has two columns, which are off to the sides. The vapors go up the columns, meet in the middle. They can actually go through uh, different packing. Okay. Um, we primarily run our large still as a stripping still, so we don't really put a whole lot of packing in there. We basically just try to run it as a pure pot still and rip off the alcohols. But we do have the capability to add different sections and make it a taller unit oh. and basically finish our spirits in one go. Wow. But for now, we do a double distillation on all our products. So yeah, the larger still for us, we wanted to go with that from I still because it was the only way we could really feasibly afford a still that could strip on the grains in our budget that was a size that we could work with. So it's about a 10 barrel system. It's about 340 gallons, which is a little bit more than a 10 gallon system or a 10 barrel system if you're from the brewing world. So that's basically our batch size. It's in units of 350 gallons. That's a pretty good size for us. Yeah, you're not running it 24 hours a day and never sleeping because you went too small. It does buy you a little bit of time. No, absolutely not. But it works well for us. It does strip on the grain. We do a grain in process. So all of our grain stays in through fermentation and then the primary distillation. So we're not laudering. We're not pulling out any of the liquids. We may end up laudering or contracting with the brewery next door to us to laudar a batch and then we'll ferment it so we can do like a single malt. Okay. Um, but for now, the grain stays in. So the still was really the largest good system we could afford that would strip on the grains. Our second still is another smaller still by iStill, and basically what we use that for is for finishing. So it has some automation. We typically don't use a lot of that, Mm -hmm. but it's basically a packed column. So it's got stainless steel packing in the column. Okay. And then it has a removable glass section that we pack with copper. So that's how we get all our copper contact is by basically pushing the spirit through this copper packing. It gets cleaned up, goes through the stainless packing, and then we collect it off. It's temperature controlled, so we're monitoring the temperature at different parts of the process to make sure we're getting what we want. And then we basically make our cuts depending on how we're doing it. So we can make anything on our smaller still from vodka to a full-flavored whiskey. I guess being grain to glass, doing your own milling, doing things on the grain, and being in an urban area, I'm just imagining one of the logistical problems that might exist. How do you get rid of your spent grain? (laughs) You can't just flush it down the drain or anything. You know, the city might start calling. (laughs) Uh, Well, what do you do? How, How do you get rid of all of that? Yeah, we can't flush it down the drain. Um, The guy who runs the building would kick us out, so (laughs) we don't want to do that. So what we basically do is we give it to a local farmer. There's a great farmer that runs a farm in Mount Bethel in Northampton County called Stone Creek Farm. And we basically reached out to him and asked him if he'd take our spent grain. So it's the deal that a lot of distillers do where it's, I'm not going to charge you anything to take this and feed it to your animals. And you're not going to charge me anything to pick it up. So we basically pump out of our still when we're done with the first distillation. Since we're grain in, it's basically a soupy mixture. It's not dry. It's very wet. We basically just pump it into big tanks. And then we forklift them on when the farmer comes and picks them up. So, okay. And again, uh, thank God for that loading dock. Then th- thank can, God for the loading yeah. dock in the building. 
So for now, that's how we do it. We may eventually end up, if the grains become too much for this farmer, adding a second farmer or trying to get rid of them another way. But as much as we can, we'd like to see them being used. I certainly don't want them to go down the drain. I mm-hmm. prefer that they not just be put out to rot somewhere for fertilizer. And we'd hope that they can go and, and feed some other animals. So right now, the farmer's been great for us. He picks our stuff up and he's also been picking up some of the stuff from hijinks oh, cool. from the brewery. So it's a good stop for him. He can basically pick up mm-hmm. a load from them and a load from us, take it back, and then you know, the next time he comes, he brings us the empty tanks. Nice. And he has some of the happiest cows in the world, I'm sure, in all of Pennsylvania. Well, right now, because ours gets fed to chickens, I oh, believe. Oh, chickens. Okay. Um, gotcha. Because it's so wet, he basically just dumps it in his field and lets the chickens go to town okay. on it. What he's planning to do, I believe, is he's going to add some pigs. Okay. And then the pigs lead it. So for distillers that have stillage that's wet because you're not watering, typically it's usually, for most distillers I talk to, pigs are the ones that that really like it and eat it. Okay. So we hope that he's going to get some pigs and we'll be able to give bigger loads and more and more yeah. and more. And then ultimately it would be great if we could do some type of tasting with a restaurant where they're tasting our spirits and uh-huh. they're making food with his stuff that was made with our grain. Nice. So we'd like to do something like that down the road. Oh, that's cool. You use wood fermenters. You don't go with the stainless steel route. Now, Am I correct? Uh, and you do an open air fermentation as well. Yeah, so we have wood cypress open top fermenters. That uh, must freak the brewers out when they come. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I don't think anything freaks them out. They're pretty experienced in just about everything. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Um, so, but yeah, if you go to the brewery next door to us, it's a completely different fermentation setup. And we have to explain that to a lot of people who have brewing backgrounds or know a lot about brewing when they come on our tours, is we do have to explain to them. We can do a different process because we're doing it in different ways. We're using more aggressive yeasts, so we're not doing a really slow, cold fermentation. We're doing a hotter, faster fermentation with a more aggressive yeast strain, so it gets done faster. So mm-hmm. it's not like it's sitting there for three weeks to rot because it's an open top, you know, right. and we're doing it at higher temperatures. So we're typically fermenting four or five days and then getting it out, oh, getting okay. it into the still again. Cool. You're a very small distillery. I'm sure it's not easy to get on a Cooperage's radar necessarily, because from what I understand, they're all back-ordered and very difficult for them to get any more capacity. And are, are you having any troubles, just as you're getting started, to source barrels? Or has the shortage worked its way through on some level? Yeah, I think the good news is from what I can tell, again, we haven't been open that long, it seems like it's getting a lot better and it is... I think it's going to be over pretty soon. Okay. Who knows? Maybe I'm wrong, but that seems to be the feedback I'm getting from other distillers. That's Um, good. It does seem to be opening up a little bit. So we have had only minor problems getting barrels. So we started early when we basically knew that we were going to open a distillery, we started putting orders in. So I put orders in with one company last June, put in orders with another company last July, and then we put orders with a third company in the fall. So we've been trying to source from a variety of sources. Fortunately for us, we've never had a problem where we didn't have a barrel. We did want to try different smaller barrels, but couldn't quite get those. So what we use is we use a mix of different sizes of barrels. So we use a lot of 15-gallon barrels, that we get from a cooperage in Minnesota. We use 25-gallon barrels that we get from a cooperage in Kentucky. And then we use some more 30-gallon barrels from another cooperage. And we have another cooperage that we're waiting to get barrels from that we've been waiting for almost a year now. Okay. Um, so we haven't been able to get everything we've wanted, but we have been able to get barrels as we need them. Nice. In June, then, it was becoming pretty real that you're opening a distillery because you're placing an order. The permits come through or whatever, you know, and you can actually have a spirit to put in the barrels. Yeah, it was tough. I mean, we ended up getting pretty lucky. So we got shut out by one company that we thought was going to come through on us. Okay. So we had put in an allocation for all of 2015 and we were basically told in October, you're not going to get them. Whoa. So we actually thought that when we started, we wouldn't have any barrels. But then to their credit, 
I explained to him, hey, we're starting. We want to do bourbon right away. Is there any way you can get us like a small supply of barrels? Like, yeah. I know you're not going to give us 10 pallets or not that we even need that many, but <laughs> you can't just put us ahead of everybody else. But man, we're going to be really screwed if we don't have barrels for the first couple of months. Yeah. And they came through with a small allocation okay. that we got in the fall. So we were able to fill some barrels in the fall and December and basically the last couple of months. And as we filled them, by the time we ran out of those, we were able to get another set of barrels from another company. So we've never actually had a time where we were trying to fill a barrel and we didn't have a barrel to fill. Well, thank God. Now that you've opened up and it's been only a short amount of time, just kind of looking back though, what do you wish you had known at the very beginning that you've learned now? You know, if you can go back in time and say, it's going to take you a few months to learn this, let me, let me tell you right now, it'll make your life easier. What's that one word of wisdom you'd pass on? I would say some of the startup costs were a little more than we had thought. We're primarily self-funded. So we're a two-man crew. Me and my uncle run the distillery. We put in our own money and we got a small business loan from the incubator. So that was a huge help from them. But we did underestimate some of our costs. So yeah. the fit out, you know, even though we didn't have to bring gas into the building, getting gas hooked up to our still was expensive. Okay. Getting, upgrading the electric in our suite was expensive. A lot of that stuff is more expensive than people think it is. So I'd say that, and I'd say just the time commitment. I mean, we're barely even open right now, and it's already a full-time job for my partner, and it's basically a second full-time job for me. So it's really time-consuming. There's just so many little things that you won't think about that you're going to have to work through. So I mean, just to give you an example, we bought corks. We bought corks and put them on, bottled them on rum. We found out after we started selling rum that a certain percentage of those corks would not go down after they had been opened. Oh my God, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we had to scramble yeah. to find more suppliers, get different samples, wow. um, find a substitute cork, recork everything, try to identify who had bought bottles from us that we could give them substitute corks if they wanted. That's just one example of something little. We've had small equipment failures. We had our mill. We had a problem with our mill. We basically had to stop producing for a week. Oh, geez. The whole startup phase is just getting your process down and getting everything how you want it. There's just a lot of little things that are going to take time. I mean, you know, resubmitting labels to the government, working with barrel suppliers, all that stuff. It doesn't seem that hard when you're looking at it, when you're putting together the business plan. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems like, oh, well, yeah, you know, I'll I'll buy some corks. Yeah. Yeah. I'll call people. No problem. How hard can it be? How much time can it take? Exactly. And there's a whole lot of tasks that even when I start doing them seem really simple, but chew up more time than I would have thought they would. So it's very time consuming and expensive to run a distillery, but it's very rewarding once, once you do. Yeah. As I look behind you, you have products on the shelves. I mean, you made that. You put that up there. What was that experience like the first time you flipped the switch on your still and it's like, okay, we're doing a production run. I hope we get this right. Do you remember what that feeling was like? Was it scary or exciting? I think the two scariest moments were, one, basically doing each step of the process at full scale the first time. So doing your first full scale mash, this is going to be our first whiskey coming in the next morning to hopefully see that it's fermenting happily. Um, you know, that's nerve wracking. Taking the little plastic top off the fermenter to, to make sure everything's going right. Yeah. You know, that was a little nerve wracking. Tasting the first batches and making sure that everything tastes good. So doing each step of the process was kind of the first part because we learned as much as we can 
we think we've put our time in to figure out how to do it and do our research, but you never know. I mean, I don't have 30 years of a distilling background to know it's going to go right every time. So mm-hmm. unfortunately, we've been very happy with the quality of products we've made. Yeah, I'd say the second nerve wracking point was the first day we opened and just seeing how people are going to react. Okay, Because we felt pretty confident that everything we were putting out there was really high quality products. We'd had the guys from the brewery taste it. We had the guys from the media <laughs> taste it. So we felt pretty good, but okay. you never know. You have to wait and have the public come in, people you don't know, yep. come in, try it for the first time and see what their reaction is going to be. Yeah. You were saying this is your first company that you've ever started. It's the first time you put a product of your own on the shelf. Yeah, absolutely. It's that, that first time that a complete stranger walks in and wants to spend money on your product. It must be gratifying to get that first sale, but also like, oh God, I hope you like it. Yeah. And I was telling somebody the other day, you know, I never thought I would care so much about what people are saying about us online uh-huh. or like how many Facebook likes we have or anything like that. <laughs> right. But I care about it. Like when I go home on the end of a Saturday from doing the tours and tastings, I'm thrilled when I see somebody wrote a nice review uh-huh. or somebody put a picture of the bottle up because they're making a drink with it at home. And they said, hey, I was just at this distillery. Now I'm making a drink with it. That's awesome. So yeah, it's nerve wracking, but that part is fun. Awesome. If you have any time or money left and you do get to go out to a bar or a restaurant or a liquor store on the production side of things, has it changed your relationship to going out? Assuming you can. (laughs) Yeah. I don't get out as much as I'd like to. Yeah. So we're only in one bar right now. We're in a bar right across from the hockey arena in downtown called the Hamilton. We haven't really pitched many bars. We pitched them just because we had met the manager there okay. um, six months ago, basically. The day we decided we were going to locate the distillery here and got accepted in the incubation program, we went to the Hamilton, had met the manager. So I basically just had his card in my wallet for nine months. So we emailed them. They came out. They bought it. They liked it. They did the whole distillery tour. They liked it. And then they sell it. I actually haven't had time to go over there and get it yet, believe it or not. Oh, really? Okay. Every day I'm like, all right, today's the day where I'm going to go over and try our stuff at a bar. (laughs) And it's never happened. There's always more things to do. But yeah, every bar I go to and every liquor store I go to, I want to know what's there. Uh I want to see what their price points are. I want to see if they have a side rack or if they're being promoted by the state liquor store in any way. I want to see if there's other craft guys there. It's a lot different now. And I get excited too. You know, when I see another craft guy is expanded into more stores or he's now in my local store, it's like, you know, that's fantastic because, you know, there's other guys that are a couple of years ahead of where we are. We hope to get there as well. It sounds like yeah, it's hard for you to just go out and relax anymore, right? Because you're always yeah. wondering, where could I fit in behind that bar? Who's here? Oh, is this a craft-friendly spot? Or is this a small-label-friendly spot? Yeah, even yeah. looking at the cocktail menus, I want to see what cocktails people are pushing. Uh-huh. How are they incorporating different spirits? What are they yeah. doing? Be like, oh, Sand Island would work on this spirit, right? It's working this recipe that you're making right yeah, here. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. What I've noticed with a lot of the nicer restaurants are doing now is It's not necessarily with your local distiller, but even some of the big distilleries is they're really big on single batch, single barrels. So they'll they'll advertise that they went to a distillery and they selected a barrel. There's different ways that we are already thinking about how when we start moving into bars and restaurants, we can work to promote our stuff. And in the same way, when somebody comes into the distillery, we want to give them a different experience. What can we do for a bar or restaurant that gives them a slightly different experience than just saying, hey, we sell Jack Daniels. Yeah, They can say, hey, we sell County Seat, we sell their bourbon, we came out, we helped them barrel it, or, you know, we picked the barrel or something like that. So That's because they want stories to tell also. They need to explain to their customers why they've created a certain thing. One of the great things that you can provide by being local. Yep, that's, yeah. that's certainly the hope. So yeah, it's definitely changed the way we go to bars bars and restaurants. Very cool. So last question, just something I like to ask everyone. Somebody comes into your tasting room or when you finally distribute to liquor stores and they pick up a bottle of Classic 8 or Sand Island, how should they enjoy it? How should they bring that bottle home and mix it? Should they mix it into a cocktail? How would you recommend that they appreciate it? 
we like to have people who come in try all our products straight okay. um, if they can. Not because that's how we expect that they're going to enjoy it, but because we want to be able to taste it. We serve everything. We give you a sample. It's warm. It's not diluted. It's not chilled. It's what's in the bottle. So we want everyone to actually taste what we're making and decide if they want to buy it, hopefully, and then give them ways to use it. So one cocktail that we really recommend with our rum is Kuiperinha. Okay. Our rum is similar to a cachaça. So we can't make a proper Kuiperinha because we're not using cachaça, which is a Brazilian rum. So instead we use our Sand Island rum and we make a Queen City, which is the name for Allentown, a Queen City Kuiperinha. What a Kuiperinha is, is it's a really simple drink that's easy to make and really highlights our spirit. So all you do is you take half a lime, cut it into quarters, basically muddle it with either some simple syrup or some raw sugar, whatever you prefer. And then you pour about three ounces of our Sand Island rum on top of it and shake it with ice and serve it unfiltered. Yeah. It is pretty easy. easy. And there's nothing for that spirit really to hide behind, right? It's just some lemon juice and sugar. So, Well, well, lime. I'm sorry, lime. Yeah, no problem. You're basically trying to get the oils and flavor out of the lime and the lime juice. And then once you've done that with the sugar, you're just adding the rum on top adding ice, shaking it, and then just serving it up. It's a really easy, simple cocktail that, for whatever reason, most people don't know about. So Mm -hmm. that's what we try to teach people when they come in. All right, cool. Well, Anthony, thank you for your time. And thanks for really explaining your new distillery. And it's so exciting to get to talk to you at such an early stage. I can't wait to follow you and see you in my local liquor store in New York sometime. Where can people find you right now? Do you have a website? Uh, I know you have a tasting room. How can they come in and meet you and experience your cocktails? When are you open? Sure. So for our physical location right now, we're open 12 to 5 on Saturdays and Sundays. So you just come to our facility, which is located at 905 Harrison Street in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and just look for the county seat sign or the hijinks brewing sign or the colony meadery sign and just go through the door and you can visit all three of us. We do tours and tastings 12 to 5. So we do comprehensive tours. We give you a tasting of all our products. We can make you cocktails and you can buy bottles. And then in terms of finding us online, we're at www.countyseatspirits.com. We have a Facebook page and our Twitter handle is County Seat LV. All right, cool. Lanthony, thank you so much. Thank you very much.